You are listening to Generation Justice. This is a multiracial project that turns youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Zan Dixon. We would like to remind you that Generation Justice broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. On March 27th of this year, the University of New Mexico's anthropology was joined by Miko Pallet, Israeli-American author of The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. He is also an international speaker and podcaster. He came to speak about what is happening in Palestine, the role of the Israeli government, and the United States contribution. He presented his talk, Palestinians on the Edge of the Precipice, Where Do We Go From Here, along with Jeffrey Haas, civil rights lawyer and one of the founders of the People's Law Office, amongst other amazing human rights activism efforts. Tonight, we listen to that speech, Palestinians on the Edge of the Precipice, Where Do We Go From Here? We hope that you enjoy this informative, inspiring speech. Uh, my name is Les Field. I'm a professor of anthropology here at the University of New Mexico. I teach a class in the anthropology department entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine in the 21st Century. Uh, not trying to hide what I teach. I also teach a class called um, uh, Cultural Diversity and Minority Peoples of the Middle East. Uh, that's what I'm teaching this semester. Uh, I'm very, very, very pleased to be part of this occasion and to welcome Miko Pellet to campus and to give his presentation on this day. Uh, Miko Pellet is an Israeli-American activist, author, and karate instructor. <laughs> he is author of the books, The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. He's also an international speaker Miko's grandfather, Avraham Kastnelson, signed Israel's Declaration of Independence. His father, Metidyahu Peled, fought in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War that, uh, and, uh, which was the, also the so-called War of Independence for Israel, and served as a general in the Six-Day War of 1967. Later, after an Israeli cabinet ignored his investigation of a 1967 alleged Israeli war crime, he, i.e. his father, became an advocate for an Israeli dialogue with the Palestine Liberation Organization. One evening in 1983, Miko skipped a Peace Now demonstration in Jerusalem to attend a karate class. And on that evening, a grenade attack by a right-wing extremist killed one of the demonstrators. Paled took this as a sign, according to one interviewer, and consequently followed the path of karate, the path of nonviolence, the practice of nonviolence, that teaches one to overcome insurmountable obstacles. Paled has described his book, The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, published in 2012, as, quote, an account of how he, the son of an Israeli general and a staunch Zionist, came to realize the story upon which I was raised was a lie. The book, which has been characterized as part confessional, part cinematic epic, and part emotional appeal for different answers to the Israeli-Palestinian conundrum, is also forwarded by Alice Walker uh, in, its, uh, in its volume. I'd like to thank uh, uh, Mr. Paled for coming today, and let's all give him a well, warm welcome. Okay, what a great crowd. It's a good problem to have when there are too many people in the room, especially when we talk about Palestine. Um, Two things that, uh, in, well, you just left. Well, thanks for the introduction. 
But um, two, two interesting things that I thought of as the introduction was going on. One is, you know, Israel is, gets very, Israeli Zionists get very angry when Israel is described as a settler colonial project. We get very angry about that. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, but that's only when it's said in English, because <laughs> it, it, every Israeli city has a settler road, a colonial plaza. I remember meeting a Palestinian friend in Yaffa once. And he said, well, let's meet, let's meet next to the conqueror's parking lot. <laughs> so conquering and settling and colonizing are all fine as long as it's in Hebrew. When you say it in English, they get offended. The other point I wrote is that the 19, what happened in 1948 in Palestine, I think cannot be, can't or shouldn't be characterized as a war. It was a brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing and war crimes. Uh, if we call it a war, I think we're giving it too much credit. And um, so that's just kind of to get things started. Uh, I owe a great, uh, uh, um, a debt of gratitude to New Mexico. So the reason, the way this all started, me coming to New Mexico, is because I don't know how many years ago I met Stan and Helen Hortz in San Diego at the Jewish Film Festival. Completely randomly, we started talking. One of us overheard the other talking about Palestine and Israel, I think. And then we started talking to each other, and then, and then they invited me to come here. And then having come to New Mexico, I met Iris Kelt, and Iris pretty, very convincingly told me that I need to write a book. <laughs> and now the book is out at a 10th anniversary edition. So thank you guys for us. Yeah. So I want to thank uh, Stan and Hell. It's good to see you again, and Iris too, for, uh, for pushing me to do this. The book, of course, completely changed my life, changed my career. Like you heard, I used to have a career in martial arts. I, when the book came out, that stopped, and the new career began of doing this and standing up and speaking for Palestine, which I'm, I'm very happy to do. A couple of clarifications. What, what, what uh, Jeff and I are going to do, we're going to do more of kind of a conversation rather than a frontal lecture. I think it's a little bit more interesting that way. And then we'll do a Q&A. Um, but a couple of things I want to put out front just so it's, very, it's clear to everyone. Uh, or maybe I'll ask you first. Is there anybody here who is from Palestine? Great. Welcome. I know someone. I know is there anybody here who's been to Palestine? Good. Great. Okay, thank you. So just a bit, so again, going back to my clarification, when I, I, I refer to, when I say Palestine, when I say Palestine, I mean the land that exists between the Jordan River in the south and the Mediterranean, I mean in the east and the Mediterranean in the west, and between the boundaries of Syria and Lebanon in the north, and the Gulf of Aqaba in the south, what is also known as historic Palestine. And so this is a land that has been known as Palestine for thousands of years. Until one day on the 15th of May, 1948, the world forgot that there was Palestine and renamed it Israel. So to me, legitimizing that action is unacceptable. And therefore, I refer to the country by its original name, which is Palestine. So just to clarify that, I want to make sure that everybody understands what I mean when I say Palestine. Very often, people will say Israel, Palestine. Well, 
which one isn't? You know, it's one of those things that the word that we use, the name that we use to describe the country reflects what we think, reflects our opinion, reflects, it's not politics really, it's values. So if we call it Israel, then we're recognizing, legitimizing, not just settler colonialism, but violence and brutality and horrific racism. And so that's what comes with the name. And some people think it's okay, so that's their right, I suppose. But if you reject those things, then I invite everyone to refer to the country by its real name, which is Palestine. And um, thank you. And um, to be, I'll say one more thing and then we'll start a little conversation. And that is that, you know, numbers are really important. And we've been talking about numbers my whole trip here. And just to clarify, I'll put out some numbers. Um, Two million. The number of Palestinians who are locked up in the concentration camp called the Gaza Strip. Three and a half million. The number of Palestinians locked up in ghettos in what used to be known as the West Bank. Two million Palestinians who carry the kind of this dubious identity as citizens of Israel, as Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, a few other numbers. Uh, so, so what's the what's the what does that add up to? Is anybody paying attention? <laughs> Seven and a half million. Seven and a half million. Six million or six and a half million is the number of Israeli Jews living between within those boundaries within Palestine. So Palestinians are the majority. Three percent. Three percent is the amount of water that's allocated by the Israeli Water Authority to Palestinians. Three percent of the entire water supply is allocated. Now the entire water supply. Some of you may know this, the entire water supply is governed by an Israeli agency called Mikorot. And so um, they do a very, um, very good job in, in uh, you know, parceling the water. Because sometimes when you look at it, I mean, sometimes the Israeli town and a Palestinian town are across the highway from each other. Sometimes the neighborhood is across the street from another neighborhood. So we're talking about <laughs> a division in a small country which is very effective and very efficient. So 3% is what Palestinians are given. Um, 300,000, the number of Palestinian Bedouin in the Naqab. The Naqab is the entire southern part of Palestine. In Hebrew, they call it the Negev. Uh, 10,000, the number of Palestinian homes or the number of homes demolished within that area alone, the Naqab over the last five years. So only for that community. Zero is the number of Israeli Jewish homes demolished in that same area. And it's interesting because the Palestinian Bedouin are among Israeli citizens are the poorest of the poor. The Israelis who live in the Naqab, in the, in the settlements in the Naqab are some of the wealthiest and enjoy some of the highest standard of living because the Naqab is a very fertile desert. But the Palestinians are prohibited from cultivating the land only the Israelis are allowed to uh, engage in agriculture there. Uh, what else? 40,000. 40,000 is the number of home demolition orders just in the northern part, the northern half of Palestine, excluding Jerusalem and the West Bank. So for Israeli Palestinian citizens of Israel, 40,000 home demolition orders. That means they don't know when the army jeeps will show up 
with a big bulldozer and destroy their home. And once again, zero is the number of home demolitions for Israeli Jewish homes. So you have to ask yourself, is it, could it be that all the Palestinians build without a permit? Are Israelis really that such law-abiding people? And the truth is, of course, no. Everybody, you know, Israeli sometimes will build a, I don't know, add a balcony or a room or something without a permit. And then there may be a, an inspector that might show up and write them a fine. And a few years later, they might go to court. A few years later, they may be paid another fine. You never see the army blocking the road or the police blocking the road and bulldozing an Israeli home. Um, 18,000 is the number of home demolition orders in Jerusalem, and it's getting smaller because with this new government, the demolition, the pace of demolishing homes and, and buildings, other buildings around Jerusalem has, um, has been, you know, the speed is greater than, than it ever was. And so these numbers paint a picture. They paint a picture. And that picture is a picture of apartheid. And you don't need to believe me, because a far greater and more and more uh, reliable source has come out with a report last year, last February, demonstrating that the state of Israel from day one has been engaged in the crime of apartheid. And that's the amnesty report. And many people don't want to read it because it's over 200 pages long. And I think it's uh, our responsibility to take, uh, to take a little time and read it. Because if we're talking about Palestine and we're active in support of Palestinian rights, we need to know what we're talking about. Claiming that the state of Israel is, is engaged in a crime of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity, without knowing what we're talking about is very dangerous. So Amnesty gave us this gift. They worked very hard for quite a few years to put it together. It's very detailed. It's a very good report. It's reliable. And, um, and we should read it and we should use it. Right now it's sitting in a drawer and nobody's using it. But it's a great tool for those of us who want to explain to the world why they should stop supporting Israel, why there should be sanctions against Israel, why Israel should be boycotted and eliminated from international events, sporting events, cultural events, diplomatic events, and so on. So here's the report that explains it all. It's not because I said it or any other activist for Palestine said it. Amnesty Report has given us all the details. So I encourage everybody to take a look at it and read it and then share it. Okay. I'm sorry? Okay. It's, the, it's, the, it's the Amnesty Report on Apartheid in Palestine. Yeah, Amnesty International. And the reason this is also important is this. Um, you know, the designation of crimes against humanity was made after the genocide of the Jews by the Nazis. That's when these laws came out that were designated as laws as, as crimes against humanity. Three years after that, 1948, an, uh, uh, an entity that claimed to represent Jewish people, the Zionist movement, established a state and began committing crimes against humanity against the Palestinian people. Only three years after the end of the Holocaust. Only three years after the end of World War II. And again, this is, these, are, these, are, these are bits of information that paint the picture. And the crimes against humanity that 
are committed by the Zionist movement, uh, by the state of Israel, and not just the apartheid. It's ethnic cleansing, which is also a crime against humanity, and it's genocide, which is, of course, a crime against humanity. And again, to say these things without knowing why we say them, in other words, without knowing the facts, is a very dangerous thing. So I really encourage, want to encourage people to um, at least read the Amnesty Report, if nothing else, so that we can use it, so that we can ask others to consider it, so that we can ask our elected officials to consider it, and so on. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Israel is apartheid against Palestinians, cruel system of domination and crime against humanity. And if you just Google Amnesty International. Yeah, put Amnesty Apartheid Report. You'll get it. Yeah, you'll find it. It's very, very easy to find. So anyway, this is kind of the, this is my little introduction, my little preamble. Now I'm going to sit here with Jeff and we're going to do a little conversation and then we'll open it up for, for Q&A. Thank you, thank you, Miko. Uh, let me introduce myself very briefly. My name is Jeffrey Haas. I have been yeah, his... No. Uh, is this better like this? Can people, I'm sorry. All right, still my name is Jeffrey Haas. And I've been a, a civil rights lawyer for, for most of my life. Starting in Chicago, was one of the founders of something called the People's Law Office. We represented the families of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark against the U.S. government. We also represented the Attica brothers. And uh, I also was one of the lawyers up at Standing Rock. So I have a history of... So I have a history of, of uh, supporting human rights struggles and particularly those of the most oppressed. And Certainly, that's why I'm here to talk about or to introduce and, and ask questions of Miko, because I think the Palestinian struggle is so important. It goes to the heart of so much. Every day we learn something about how how much domination uh, Israel has, or correctly called Palestine, has. We, a few days ago, we learned that Netanyahu and Trump made a deal that to get Trump elected, they would... Uh, Trump would move the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, and he would also pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. So it's not even just the issue of the Palestinians. It's really the issue of the arms imperialist connections between the U.S. and the state of Israel that is really critical to all of us. Also, the fact that we are the supporter and the reason why Israel is able to dominate and have so much weaponry, have so much money, and have somebody who covers for them. Anyway, I'm really glad to see so many people here. It's certainly interesting to see Israel in the news. Uh, and it's interesting to see every day, even on the way here, we hear about the Judicial Reform Act uh, there. But we invited Miko here. I'm with Santa Fans for Justice in Palestine, together with Jewish Voice for Peace in Albuquerque and Veterans for Peace. We asked, uh, Miko to come here uh, before some of this happened. And so we, I asked Miko, what do you want the title of your uh, talk to be? And he said, Palestinians on the edge of the precipice, where do we go from here? And he's going to, I want to ask you why you picked that title. But I also want to say one other thing you said, and I think they're connected, because he talked about a particular image. I've heard him speak. He spoke up in Santa Fe last night. He said, when you go to the beach in Tel Aviv, you could see the smoke.
from the planes dropping bombs on Gaza. That this beautiful Mediterranean beach, you can you. So in terms of knowledge of what's going on, the people in the in uh, the 48 know what's going on, and that particular image struck with me. And what impact did that have uh, on the people seeing the smoke over Gaza, knowing what that represented? Well, thank you, Jeff. And so, so the first part of the question, the title, Palestine on the Edge of the Precipice. When we look at the makeup of the current Israeli government, then the image that I see, the, the image you know, it conjures an image of standing at a precipice. I don't think Palestinians have been faced with greater danger ever before, such great danger as they do now. And as we all know, or I assume we all know, Palestinians have lived in uh, horrific conditions and, and, and in danger of, of being killed and, and, and so forth since the establishment of the State of Israel. However, we are at a point now where something very interesting happened or something very frightening happened. And that is that a generation of, of, of thugs, of, a generation of, of gangsters, were allowed to live in the settlements in the West Bank, what used to be called the settlements, what in the West Bank, now they call it Judea and Samaria, of course. These thugs who were allowed to, to just live without any law, who conducted themselves in any way they wanted, who took the apartheid state and, and, uh, and made it you know, as worse as it could possibly be, the expression of apartheid, the worst that it could possibly be within the West Bank. Now these thugs are wearing suits and were given the most sensitive, most crucial, most important positions within the Israeli government. So what happened was, as soon as they were elected, as soon as it was clear that they were going to receive everything they asked for, because Netanyahu gave them everything they wanted, one thing that happened was that their people on the ground were empowered. So we hear about settlers going through Palestinian towns, and this was described over and over again as, as pogroms. The last one was the town of Huara, but they did it in Lid. They do it in Hebron. They've done it in many, many different places. It's just not all of them somehow make it to, uh, to the news. Now they're empowered. They were never held accountable. But now their people are in power. So what used to be maybe something that was allowed, now it's policy. It's not just that it's allowed, it's policy. Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose name I, I'm, I'm, I expect some of you have heard, and Vitaly Smotrich, these people grew up as thugs, racist, the worst type of racist, violent thugs, as you can imagine. Now they're all wearing suits, and they hold the most sensitive positions in the cabinet. What can Palestinians possibly expect? This is, we are on the edge of a precipice. Now, Never at any time have I ever heard anybody talking about providing Palestinians with safety and security, providing Palestinians with the means to be safe, to defend themselves. 
People always talk about Israel needs to defend itself. Israel has to defend itself. What about the Palestinians? The Palestinians are the ones being killed. And the rates in which Palestinians are being killed right now since the elections, the last elections, is greater than anything we've seen before. Nobody talks about demanding guarantees from somebody, somebody to step in. Somebody needs to step in and provide safety and security for Palestinians. That's not even part of the conversation. It's never been part of the conversation. But today, as Palestinians stand on the edge of the precipice, this must be a part of our conversation. And sadly, we're not there. We're not there even now. Even as the numbers of Palestinians being killed grows and grows and grows every day. So this is where we are, and I think in many ways this title is a call, more than anything, it's a call to action. We can't expect somebody to come and do it. We can't expect a leader from here or a leader from there, a prime minister here or a president there. It's not, They're never going to come. If we don't step in, then more Palestinians are going to be killed at a much greater pace. And the Israeli settlers... And the Israeli soldiers are never held accountable. Not even the Israeli government is held accountable. A senior member of the Israeli cabinet a couple of weeks ago called for the elimination, for the elimination of an entire town. I didn't see any government around the world calling the Israeli ambassador for clarification, which is what you, what you do in a case like this. I didn't see that minister who, by the way, is, is Vitalis Motrich, be called and warned and, and reprimanded by the prime minister. It's not even an issue. It's like, well, this is part of the discourse. So what if he said it? A senior member in the Israeli cabinet, a member of the security cabinet, called for the elimination of an entire Palestinian town. And then, I don't know if you saw this, but he was in France, speaking at a commemoration for another racist Zionist that had passed away, and I won't go into that. And he stood by this podium, and I don't know if you saw this, but on the podium there was a map. And in the middle of the, it was kind of a map, kind of an Israeli flag, but in the middle there was a map which included Palestine and the Kingdom of Jordan, which is a map used to be used by, you know, the, the most extreme of the Zionists, and it really has never been used officially by any 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 Israeli agency or as any Israeli speaker officially. A senior member of the Israeli cabinet is now speaking internationally, publicly, and that is what's on the podium. So now, what does that mean? What do what what, what are people who live in Jordan supposed to think now? What is the Jordanian government supposed to think now? Is this what's coming up? So even though things were horrible, even though the apartheid regime has been brutal from day one, and you know, some people say, yes, you know, there's been, uh, Israelis have gone more right wing, they've gone more extreme. I don't believe that's true. Because Israel was founded on a, on a, on a campaign of massacres and ethnic cleansing that is horrifying beyond words. But they are now empowering the worst elements in Israeli society. Now, the second question. So, you know, we see hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the street now. 
hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been, you know, Israelis mobilized in ways that nobody's ever seen before. And what and and this has been going on for weeks. And here's what it tells me. Now, this is the part of Israeli society that did not vote for Netanyahu in this government. So this is the 40-45%. Okay. So we see Israelis in the streets. We hear that reservists are refusing to show up for service. We hear that this was just reported in the Israeli press. 200 fighter pilot, reservist fighter pilots, refuse to show up for training. They have to show, they have to train every week to get a certain number of hours of flight hours. Israeli Air Force pilots are the gods of the gods of the gods in Israeli society. And they announce that they will not show up because their civic duty is not greater than their duty uh, to train as fighter pilots. But what does that tell me? What does that tell us? If these hundreds of thousands of Israelis wanted to, this the blockade of Gaza could have been lifted. Thousands of Palestinian political prisoners, including children, could have been relieved, released. Palestinians who live in ghettos, whether it's the Gaza Strip, or the West Bank could have been allowed to travel freely and live as humans and go back to their lands and go back to their homes. And on and on and on. If they can mobilize like this, why are they not calling for the end of the apartheid regime? That's not their problem. Their problem is that some of their privileges as privileged Israeli Jews within the apartheid regime are in danger. That's all they care about. Can you imagine if 200 Israeli fighter pilots stood up and said, we will not drop millions of tons of bombs on Gaza? Can you imagine that? That would be the game changer. It would be the end of it. If they won't do it, who's going to do it? Netanyahu doesn't know how to fly, fly a plane, an F-16 or whatever. If Israeli fighter pilots would stand up and say, not two, even 200, 20, would stand up and say, we will not bomb a civilian population that has no defenses. We will not bomb people who are enclosed in, a, in an open-air prison. We refuse to bomb civilians. Can you imagine the impact? This is not even part of the conversation. Now back to the smoke that we see from the beach in Tel Aviv, when Israel bombs Gaza, People on the beach in Tel Aviv can see the smoke. You can see the smoke. Does anybody leave the beach? Does anybody put down their beer and go home and go somewhere and protest? Do they close down the restaurants? It doesn't even occur to people. A couple of years ago, I forget when this was. I think it was uh, 2021. I'm not sure. Maybe before that. But I remember they were bombing Gaza and the Tel Aviv Marathon was going on. I mean, think about this for a minute. Civilians are being murdered in the worst possible way. This is far worse. People say, oh my God, ISIS killed, you know, cut people's heads off. You know how many heads are being blown off when Israel bombs Gaza? 
This is far worse. And Israelis are running a marathon in Tel Aviv in a beautiful sunny day. It's maybe 50 miles from Tel Aviv to Gaza. It's nothing. These hundreds of thousands of Israelis do not give a damn. These fighter pilots are quite happy to be war criminals and kill civilians. That's what these protests are telling us. Nothing else. Uh, thank you, Miko. A couple of days, a couple of days ago, uh, Miko and I were on a radio interview, and it was a very seemed like a very sympathetic uh, interview, and. Uh, then Miko told the interviewer some of what he just said here. And the interviewer said, well, it's just too complicated. I mean, this has been going on for centuries, for years. Uh, Jews and Arabs inherently hate each other. So I, I, I sympathize with what you're saying, but I, I can't imagine that there's any solution. And I think we both responded to that, but I'm going to let give you Miko's response. Thanks. So I think there are three or four things, three or four issues or topics that are thrown into this conversation to make it seem like it's intractable, like it's impossible to solve. One of them is the word peace. The other one is the two-state solution. And the third one is anti-Semitism. Whenever anyone tries to have a serious conversation on the apartheid regime, on Israeli war crimes, on the prospects for a future where Israelis and Palestinians can live a normal life, one of these three things is always thrown in there. Oh, there's a fourth one, I'm sorry. The fourth one is Hamas. Excuse me, Hamas is the fourth one. One of these things is thrown in there to prove that it's impossible, that it's anti-Semitic to talk about apartheid, it's anti-Semitic to say that Israelis commit war crimes, that we have to uh, somehow complete, keep negotiating for a peace solution, which is based on the two-state solution, both concepts of which nobody really understands and are impossible. Let me clarify a little bit. The notion of peace with Israel or the idea that there could be a peace with Israel is complete nonsense. It's a complete misreading of the last hundred years of Palestinian history, of the history of Palestine and the Zionist movement. From the minute the state of Israel was established, even before that, but let's take from that as a starting point, it was absolutely clear that the state of Israel wants nothing to do with peace unless it's a surrender. Certainly not with the Palestinian people. It was absolutely clear that the land of Israel, in terms of the way the Zionists see it, the land of Israel, which is all of historic Palestine, belongs to the Jewish people. The Arabs are welcome to stay as long as they're quiet and subservient and live with no rights. But preferably, they're either dead or gone. This has been made very clear in statements and in actions. Very clear. But it's kind of impolite to say these things in public. So they come up with these ideas. Well, we need to make peace. How do we make peace? Well, we can make peace with the Arabs. Well, we can't make peace with these Arabs because they're terrorists. And their leaders are terrorists. 
and their leaders are corrupt and their leaders can't be trusted and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Somehow this peace never happens. And the only way that we can make peace is with a two-state solution. What's a two-state solution? What's a two-state solution? You what? You, you start carving up the country? How do you carve up a country like Palestine? So there was this thing called the West Bank, and there was this thing, or there still is this thing called the Gaza Strip, but who drew these boundaries? Before 1948, there was no West Bank. The West Bank was the entire western side of the Jordan River, but there was no area called the West Bank. There are no geographical boundaries or any reason particular other than at one point, Israel drew these lines stating that that's what they wanted. Those are the particular boundaries they wanted at that particular time. The same with the Gaza Strip. What's the Gaza Strip? There's a city of Gaza, there's a bunch of other cities, but as a result of this massive campaign of ethnic cleansing in southern Palestine, they needed a place to, hurt, to send these refugees. What are they going to do with them? So they created a line, they called it the Gaza Strip, then they pushed refugees into it. So a two-state solution would be allowing the Palestinians to have that as their, their own independent state. But again, you can't have, let them do it because you can't trust them because they're corrupt, because they're terrorists. And on and on and on and on and on. And if you dare question any of this, well, anti-Semitism. You're anti-Semitic. If you challenge the legitimacy of the state of Israel, if you challenge the legitimacy of Zionism, then you must be anti-Semitic. And on and on. So you start by perhaps, you know, honestly and sincerely wanting a serious conversation with Zionists. Might as well knock your head against the wall. But let's say you try. So then right away, one of these four things comes up. Hamas, Hamas. How could you possibly make peace with Hamas? They want to kill all of us. They want to throw the Jews in the ocean. They're throwing rockets. They're shooting rockets. Blah, blah, blah. We gave them Gaza. A whole slew of arguments. Now we're not talking about Israeli crimes. We're not talking about the apartheid report. We're not talking about how to end this. We're talking about all these other issues. Yes, anti-Semite. No anti-Semite. Who's a Semite? Who's not a Semite? On and on and on. Meanwhile, we're not talking about the important issue. It's like the Iran threat. Every time Israel is afraid, you know, Israel doesn't want people to look at Gaza. They go, look, look, look over there. The Iran threat, Iran threat. And everybody goes and looks that way. That's precisely what happens on the, in the international arena. And people, civilians, and two, can you imagine? It's actually more than two million. It was two million a few years ago. There's more than two million people locked up in Gaza. And it's not just that they're locked up. And it's not just the bombing. Imagine, many of you here, I'm sure, are parents. Imagine a child with an ear infection and there's no access to antibiotics. Imagine a child with a curable cancer and the hospital is 20 minutes away by car, but you can't go there because you're enclosed in the Gaza Strip. So the child will die. An Israeli child in a settlement just on the other side of the wall will live. That's what's so horrifying about this. Israel gets to decide who lives and who dies. That's why it's so horrible. Horrible. It's not just the bombing. It's not just that they're being locked up. It's his details. It's his details about stories about people who have who need medical treatment 
Sometimes they don't want to go into an Israeli hospital. They just want to go to the West Bank because the, the, the conditions there are slightly better. They have access to slightly better uh, medical facilities. And that is denied. So this is why it's, people say it's complicated, but it's not. There are only two options when it comes to Palestine. I'm sorry if this sounds, you know, radical, but I, that's, I don't see how there's any other option. The first one is recognizing the single state that was created by Israel, by the Zionist movement called Israel, from the river to the sea, all of historic Palestine is the state of Israel, and that's it. It's an apartheid state, and that's it. This is it. People always say, what's the end game? This is it. There's no end game. This is it. As long as we as Israelis kill more than they, more of them than they kill of us, we're fine. So that's one option. And many people find, think that it's fine. Many people think that this is a perfectly good solution, a perfectly good, rea acceptable reality. But people of conscience can't accept that. And as people of conscience, we have to be determined not to be dragged into these complicated arguments and call for an end to the apartheid regime for a free and democratic Palestine throughout all of historic Palestines within the borders that I described earlier. And not just as a matter of theory, but creating practical mechanisms that will allow the refugees to return to their homes and their land. And of course, provide reparations and compensation. That is the other option. Those are two options. It has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with our values. Palestine is not a political issue. It's not a religious issue. Even they try again, they try to complicate it by saying it, it is one of these two. It's not. Where do your values, where do our values stand? Do we accept racism? Yes or no? I reject racism. You know, everybody needs to decide what their position is on racism. I reject violence. I reject apartheid. Those are my values. It's got nothing to do with politics. So if we view it this way, it does two things. Number one, it's not complicated at all. Because all we have to do is reach in and look, check with our values. And the second thing, it determines precisely what we're fighting for. And that is lacking on our side of this argument, of this issue, uh, us to be really single-mindedly determined and understanding precisely what it is that we're fighting for. So it's not complicated, and we need to be, watch out not to be drawn into these conversations that make it seem complicated. We're, we're sitting here in the United States, uh, and maybe we say, well, it's, it's too difficult for me, or I have other priorities, or it's not that important, or I get stigmatized as anti-Semitic if I come out for Palestinian rights. So how important do you think it is that people in the United States stand up? How important is it, do you think, that students in particular and many of us remember the anti-apartheid campaign against South Africa and the critical role that students played in terms of 
taking action, closing down universities, raising the consciousness of our entire society. And it had brought it, it was a critical factor in bringing down apartheid in South Africa. So what do you think about our role as, as people in the US, in particular the potential for students here uh, in terms of the struggle of Palestinians? Let me ask, and also, what what will the response be as students organize around Palestine? What have you noticed this? How has the uh, the Israeli lobby responded to that? Yeah, that's a lot of questions. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> the problem with being an American on this particular issue is that just by being an American, we're complicit. We're complicit. So unless we stand up and very clearly denounce what is happening in Palestine and do everything we can possibly do to make sure that our tax money stops going into the apartheid regime and that weapons made here stop going to the apartheid regime, unless we do that, our complicity is, is absolute. We vote for the people who pushed the button every January and sent $3.8 billion to the killers of Palestinians. We are the ones who vote for the people who vote for, uh, for you know, the aid package and the weapons sales and on and on and on. We voted for them. We vote for people who stand up and declare publicly that they are Zionists, that they are proud Zionists. Are we out of our minds? We live in a reality where somebody can stand up publicly without any fear, without being embarrassed, without afraid, being afraid they're going to lose their position, their, their job, and declare that they are proud Zionists. Think about this for a moment. Think about the, 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 the last hundred years in Palestine. How can anybody do this without, without worrying, without being afraid? Loving embarrassed. Imagine the same people, Joe Biden, standing and saying, I'm a proud anti-Semite. <laughs> they need to have killed more, you know, whatever. I, it's absurd. Anti-Semitism and Zionism are both racist ideologies, and there should be zero tolerance to both of them. politician that says proudly or even in secret that they are Zionists should be out of the job. What are we doing voting for people who are willing to say that they're Zionists? Are we out of our minds? How do we, how do we allow this to happen? How do we tolerate this? Certain things, there should be zero tolerance. I think we agree on that, right? And racism is certainly one of those things. Zionism is racism. Zionism is not different from anti-Semitism. It's the same. This is something that is extremely, extremely important to you know internalize and then express. And are we going to be called anti-Semitic for saying that? Absolutely. But that's one of these attempts to pull us to start talking about anti-Semitism and talk about who's a Semite and who's not a Semite. 
Fine, I'm anti-Semitic. Now let's talk about the, uh, the amnesty report. I am anti-Semitic. I, I oppose the dropping of bombs and civilians. I oppose apartheid machines. I'm the racist. If being, you're supporting the Palestinian justice in Palestine, supporting justice in Palestine is anti-Semitic, if it's racist, what is it when you support the racism and you support the bombing of children and you support the apartheid regime? What are you? It's an absurd conversation. It's an absolutely absurd conversation. And talking about uh, campus activism, here in this country, I don't think any, any organization, any group has contributed to the conversation of Palestine as much as the student groups on campuses did. Whether it's the Muslim student associations, whether it's students Palestine, and there's a few other names, but basically those are the two main ones. No one has contributed to the conversation on Palestine as much as the students on campuses have. Now there's a bit of a stalemate. There's kind of a bit of a lull. And I think that needs to be re-energized. And I won't get into why it's, but this needs to be energized. And once again, I'll go back to the amnesty report. This is a great tool. So if students want to organize and mobilize, this is a great tool. Get the campus to adopt the report and adopt the recommendations in the report. Calling for divestment, for sanctions, all this is important. But now we have a reason. Now it's clear. It's not just because I say it or a Palestinian, God forbid, say it or somebody else says it. It's in the report. This is a great tool that students can use on campus to run with and demand demand that campus adopt the report and adopt the recommendations at the end of the report. The, the, the biggest thing in student uh, activism for Palestine was calling for divestment. Divestment uh, campaigns were all over the place. They started Berkeley and then they went to UCLA and then you said at UCSD and other campuses around the country and in Canada too. And they're quite successful, except that the divestment campaigns were a symbolic act. In other words, the student body recommending or asking the regents of the university to divest from Israel and from companies that benefit from uh, the occupation and the apartheid. Fine, which is important, but they never did. I don't think any, any, any university divested as a result of this. This is different. This is an actual thing that's here that was written by and researched by Amnesty International. They can call amnesty anti-Semitic all day and all night. It makes no difference whatsoever. The fact is amnesty reports are reliable reports. So if I was a student on campus today, I would organize around that. And it doesn't have to be only Palestinians, it doesn't have to be only Jews, it could be anybody who, who, who wants to resist injustice and stand up against injustice. So I would strongly, whoever, if there are any, any uh, students from this particular campus or under other campuses or faculty, this is a great tool to work with. Demand that the, that the university adopt this and the recommendations. And we, talk, we heard earlier about the IHRA 
definition of anti-Semitism. The IHRA, this the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, is this kind of a vague organization. It's a European kind of alliance. And they came up with this um, this uh, non-binding working definition of anti-Semitism, which makes it, makes it sound kind of benign. But the problem is that the Zionist organizations around the world and around this country have been pushing governmental organizations, universities, churches, going all the way from you know city councils, counties, cities, states, and on and on and on and on, every agency you can think of to adopt it. It's everywhere. It's being adopted by everybody, everywhere, every, every you know, it's insane. And they're saying, well, there's a rise in anti-Semitism. Things are horrible. We need to be strong. Fine, if there's a rise in anti-Semitism and racism, we have to have a debate. Why does Montgomery County in, in Maryland adopt it, the Council of Montgomery County in Maryland, adopted in secret? When nobody knew, suddenly, boom, we're here that they adopted it. There was no debate. They didn't call different people to, you know, to give their opinions on this issue of the rising of anti of the rise of anti-Semitism. Why is it in hiding? Because this is a push to intimidate people from having the conversation we're having right here this afternoon. That's what it's about. So it's important to resist it. It's important to fight it. It's important to show the you know governmental officials and non you know university campuses and everybody else that's adopted it that we're against it. At the same time, it's time for us to initiate, not always to be responsive and condemn what they're doing, but to initiate. This is a fight they can't win because it is an apartheid regime. <clears throat> It is an apartheid state. It is an apartheid regime. Apartheid is a crime against humanity. And again, they can call Amnesty International anti-Semites you know, all day and all night. It doesn't change the fact. But this is an important and reliable report. So like I said, if I was on campus today, student or faculty, I would run with that. Generation Justice would like to thank the University of New Mexico's Department of Anthropology, Les Field, Miko Paled, and Jeffrey Haas, for the effort that went into making this event possible. I had the privilege to attend the speech and was gifted an opportunity to hear about the experiences of people who have firsthand witnessed the occupation and it was truly a powerful and insightful moment. Before we end our program, we would like to remind you that although the public health emergency has ended, the global deadly and disabling pandemic is not over. Many of our loved community members are still contracting COVID-19 and other life-threatening illnesses. Wearing a mask, staying up to date with your vaccinations, washing your hand frequently, and continuing social distancing protocols are still ways that you can continue to protect yourself and your loved ones. It is not too late to get vaccinated if you haven't done so already. You can go to vaccinenm.org and schedule an appointment. And for more information about vaccines, COVID-19, and community health, you can go to ProtectYourHoodNM. That's ProtectYourHoodNM.org for more information about the current health of our state, COVID-19, variants, and the end of the public health emergency. We hope this is helpful to our listeners.
We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank the University of New Mexico's Department of Anthropology, Les Field, Miko Paled, and Jeffrey Haas. We would also like to thank Roman Garcia for editing support. Tonight's Hour Radio was produced by Roberto Rael and Barbara Ramirez with production assistance from Sanandita Santana. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcast, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Guanama Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together Program, and Office of School and Adolescent Health, as well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course all of you have contributed to our project by visiting our website, clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of a Nation by P.O.D. I'm Zan Dixon. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Have a great night, New Mexico.